This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 or live streaming through WAGP.net. We're so glad you found us. And what we do for the next hour is we take people's questions. Maybe there is an issue in your life or church or ministry or just a passage you're trying to understand so that you can apply it properly. If we can be of help, all you need to do, again, the local number, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, or the toll-free number is 877, the call letters WAGP980. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you call in, we give preference to live callers and dictated questions over emails, but we'll do our best to try to respond to the issue that you're facing. So, Rick, with that said, let's go ahead and we'll begin this morning. All right, Pastor. We've got an anonymous listener from Buford that uh, would like the following questions answered. First, she says, I have been studying Matthew 11, 28 to 30, and was wondering what the word yoke means when it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is it talking about the wooden device used on animals to carry and balance a load? I was just curious on how it relates to the passage. I'd also appreciate it if you would talk about divine election versus the free gift offered to all. All right. So there's two questions there. We usually just take one at a time, but let me at least start with the first one. Uh, The yoke. Context is everything. Uh, The chapter opens, if you remember, John the Baptist is imprisoned. He's had kind of a a mediatoric ministry. He ministers just for one year. And then he's locked up, and he's wondering, like, what's going on? And so he sends some of his disciples who served and worked and ministered with him to Jesus to ask the question, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Uh, John was not really in unbelief. He's just doubting himself. He has a legitimate doubt because the picture of the Messiah in the Old Testament is not only would he suffer and die, and so John has already presented him at his baptism, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's also the one who's going to rule and reign. You know, a baby will be born, and this baby, Isaiah said, will have the governments upon his shoulders. Doesn't look like it, especially with John in prison, and so the stress and all that, you know. And so he sends his disciples just to ask Jesus, and Jesus comes back and says, tell John, you know, and he elaborates on specific miracles that are unique to Messiah. And that's all John needs because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God and his doubts are immediately 
uh, cleared up. And, of course, then he deals in this context with the Pharisees, and they're the problem, and they're the genesis of the invitation that Christ gives at the end of the chapter. Uh, They laid on men burdens that were beyond belief. Uh, They sought to achieve a righteousness by the things they did, Uh, and John the Baptist said, you're not good enough, you can't do enough, you need to repent. And so then he lifts John up, and he says, there is never a man ever born of a woman greater than John. Uh, But then he adds, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than John. John dies, of course, before Pentecost, never receives permanent indwelling of the Spirit, which is a unique promise under the New Covenant that starts when the church is born in the day of Pentecost. But still, he has, even John, a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit. But even those who are least in the kingdom will be greater than John because John didn't live on this side of the cross. Uh, And then the Lord reminds them right before this invitation, he said, at that time, Jesus said, he goes in prayer, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Then he adds, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor anyone knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so the hard-hearted, unrepentant, Pharisees and the unrepenting cities that he just uh, dealt with, Chorazin and Bethsaida, all kinds of miracles done in them. And Jesus said, if the miracles that you saw occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented, but you didn't. They were hard-hearted. And so God doesn't reveal himself to the hard-hearted. He reveals himself to those who are not wise in their own thinking, uh, but like a babe, innocent. And, and then he gives an invitation that is so contrary to Phariseeism. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's, interestingly, there's three verbs that describe um, our responsibility. He says, come to me. Then he says, take my yoke and learn from me. And in both cases, he gives a promise. When he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember, the Pharisees not only taught the law of God, but they taught the traditions of men. Uh, They had like over 600 commandments that they invented as to how to express the Mosaic law, especially when it related to the Sabbath. And so on that day when someone comes to Jesus and said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? Uh, He's really not just asking of the 613 that's recorded in the Mosaic law, but there are 600 plus that reflected how you should apply those laws. And, um, and so they, they basically said, do. Do this, do this, do this. And a little bit later, um, in fact, the, the week, uh, it's Tuesday. And on Tuesday, I've just uh, turned to Matthew 23, and let's see. Uh, it's in verse 4. He's uh, exposing Phariseeism, and he says, they, the Pharisees, tie up burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them so much as a finger. I mean, it was just oppressive, the things that they did. And again, there's nothing wrong with obeying, but it has to be in the context of relationship. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But they asked for obedience, not in terms of um, having a personal relationship with the living God. And this is why he has just spoken of the need for relationship to know the Father 
and to know the Son, and that the Son can reveal to those whom he pleases. So when we come to the Lord, if we're weary and heavy laden, and it's often not until we're at the end of ourselves that we see our need for a Savior. He said, I will give you rest. This really speaks of justification, what Romans 5.1 would call peace with God. But then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So first he gives rest, and then he, he quotes Jeremiah here, you will find rest. This really speaks of our sanctification. So the first is kind of a crisis point where we see our need for a Savior and Lord. The second deals really with a process, that process of sanctification, where we daily take the yoke of the Lord and we are learning from him through Holy Scripture. And the promises is my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And of course, he's in an agricultural setting. 90% of the people in Israel have jobs related to agriculture, much like people in early America did. Um, And a yoke, of course, was uh, put on oxen to pull a plow or to uh, turn a wheel or any number of reasons. And they custom made them so that they would not chafe on the oxen's uh, head. And, and of course, he's saying, basically, you need to be hooked to me um, because what I am offering you, a relationship with the living God, is not oppressive like Pharisaism. And so he can say, my yoke is easy and my burden is indeed light. You know, John says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. To use Jesus' words, they are easy, and my burden is light. They're pleasurable when you know that you have been given rest, peace with God. Then you can grow in that relationship and experience what Paul calls in Philippians 4, the peace of God as we walk with the Lord, and that's a daily ongoing process after we're converted. But we can't really experience peace of God until we come, with, come to Christ and we experience peace with God. That's, that's a great question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, and uh, regarding the uh, election versus yeah, so this, free gift. Yeah, so this is what I would encourage this person to do, would be to download the Search the Scriptures app. And so if you go to the app store, it looks kind of like a blue triangle, searchthescriptures.org, all one word, search the scriptures, and just type that in or search the scriptures, Carl Brogy. There's another organization. It will come up. Download the app. Click on the book of Romans and listen to Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, those are three critical passages in dealing with the doctrine of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That's where I would encourage you to start because it's an armchair question, and we'd be here for the next hour, and then if you have a follow-up question, you can come back. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. We have Thomas from Savannah, who's on line one. Let's go to him. Thanks for holding. Good morning, Thomas. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brogy. <clears throat> I just had a quick question about uh, the utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers, just kind of yeah. out what your thoughts were on that. And then I also just wanted to give a quick uh, praise just for, you know, what you did with planting, you know, or what y'all's church did with planting the Savannah CBC, and now I actually attend the newer uh, Richmond Hill CBC. So just wanted to say thank you. All right. Well, it's a good question. Uh, Oswald Chambers was a great man of God, and he wrote a devotional that is still loved in helps a lot of people. It is a devotional. So with that said, like with any devotional, you're getting kind of a singular thought 
for the day typically that you're keen off of. Um, I like devotionals for like uh, a little break maybe in the middle of the day. I don't like devotionals, say, for my quiet time because, and I've seen and read the like the most heralded devotions in the world in the history of Christendom. I've read many of them and have them in my library, but you can't really feed and grow off of a devotional thought. You need some meat. You need to study a verse contextually, just kind of like what we just did here with Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, that the last um, person emailed us on. Uh, it needs to be looked at in the context. It needs to be sought and understood in its context and uh, what it means. How do I apply it? Uh, that involves more than a little five or 10 minute read. So something like Oswald Chambers, and again, he's, he has a place, he's amillennial in his eschatology, but uh, he, so he doesn't really focus much on eschatology. So it's going to be limited in terms of um, his view of current day prophecy beyond the fact that Jesus is coming back. Um, but understand a third of the scripture is prophetic in nature, and over half of the third of the scripture that's prophetic in nature is yet to be fulfilled. And so you really can't teach the Bible without working through the prophetic sections. And prophecy, as it relates to Christ's return, is very, very important. And whether you view there's a future for Israel or whether the church has replaced Israel, as Oswald Chambers taught, is going to view, uh, going to flavor your view of prophecy. Uh, but he doesn't deal a whole lot with it, and most amillennialists don't because they don't know what to do with it. I've often said, you know, John Calvin, and I have his full set of commentaries. He wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. He didn't really know what to do with it. And based on the last caller, too, who wanted to understand divine election and human responsibility, the way he interpreted Romans 9, 10, and 11 was largely predicated on his view of Israel, because he believed that God was done with Israel, that the church had usurped Israel's place, become the new Israel, basically keying off of Roman Catholic theology that he was born and nurtured in, but he put a different spin on it. Um, that influenced the way he interpreted texts like Romans 9, 10, and 11. So I will say all that to say that Chambers doesn't really deal much with eschatology uh, in his devotional just briefly, lightly, um, but what he does deal with, he does an excellent job. I wouldn't agree with every point. You can't find two pastors who agree on everything, um, but overall, he was a fine, godly man who walked with the Lord, and God honored his ministry. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, William from Walterboro just dictated his question. He wants to know, as Christians, will we be judged for voting for someone who promotes sin with their political power? How do you balance that God is sovereign over who are in positions of power and democracy and voting? Well, God has called us to be salt and light. Uh, we are to, like salt, uh, preserve righteousness. Like light, we are to dispel darkness. And, of course, people live in different kinds of governmental structures across the planet. We live in a republic. We have an opportunity to express our desires, and our desires should be expressed not based on our own sheer personal needs, but based on what 
God's Word says. And so you start with sometimes a party, take the Democrat Party, for instance, in their platform, in their very platform, they are espousing the murder of innocent babies in the womb up until the day the baby is born. So if you're one day from delivery and you decide you want to have an abortion, their platform sanctioned that. And so they're very upset with uh, the direction the country is going with a lot of pro-life states. And so you have liberal Democrats like in the governor uh, Newsom of uh, California who's willing to say, come bring your baby here and we'll slaughter it. I mean, that's evil beyond evil. In their platform, they are espousing the homosexual lifestyle in their platform like never before. They are affirming, lifting up transgenderism. You know, when our president is asked just recently about his feelings concerning children and their desire to express their will in reference to transitioning their sexual um, bodies, he's got their back. This is evil. This is causing little ones to stumble. And so these politicians that are advocating for little girls to get mastectomies and for boys to be castrated, uh, this, is, this is child abuse. And so how anyone, for one, could vote for a Democrat is beyond me. So we've got Stacey Abrams, who's running in Georgia, and we have a lot of people listening in Georgia. She spoke in Creflo Dollars Church last Sunday. He's a false prophet. I quoted him on Sunday, not in reference to the election, but I was dealing with a text in that the Scripture reminds us that men would turn away from the faith. They would listen to doctrines of demons. And he said that Jesus died so you could become rich. And he preaches another Jesus, not the Jesus of the New Testament. So we're not surprised that he has Stacey Abrams in, who, you know, she brags that she was raised up in a spiritual family and and she's in favor of abortion, and she says that Jesus is. I mean, the governor of California had giant billboards taken out of context, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, and the most one great expression of loving your neighbor is allowing them to murder their little babies. This is just evil. And so if you're voting for a Democrat, you've got some strong thinking to do. That's not to say that there couldn't be a pro-life Democrat in the country, but they're far and few between because most can't support the party. And so we just saw a leading politician in Hawaii leave her own party because she said, this is like too radical for me, not to mention all the other religious um, ideologies that they are espousing, like the whole green movement. That doesn't mean that every Republican is great. So I called, you know, a senator who represents us down in this region from Charleston and then on Dauton, down in that area. We had him on this radio station. I've yet to hear back from him why last week or 10 days ago he did not support the pro-life bill when on this radio station he said he was pro-life. See, that was easy for a lot of Republicans to do as long as Roe v. Wade was not overturned because you could hide behind that. You could say you're a pro-life. But now that Roe v. Wade was overturned, now you have to take a stance. And I've left a message on his home phone and on his personal cell phone. He's yet to respond to me. 
And, you know, I thought, is there something we missed? Was there some procedural issue, something hanging on it that I missed? Speak to me. Help me. Haven't heard from him. I promise you he will never come on this station again as a fake pro-life person. But he's a Republican. There are other people, you know, like Tom Davis, who's a Republican. He's a fake. He's just a fake. He's in favor you know, they they say, well, I'm not personally in favor of abortion, but, you know, it's a woman's right. Yeah, sure it is. It's it's your right, I guess, to have your own personal gas chamber to, to, to poison Jews in. I mean, it's just, it's either life at conception or it's not. Add to that, we, we've got people in leadership who have a low view of the law. You know, you don't want to defund the police. You don't want to live in a city where the police are being defunded or, you know, constantly ragged on. That's not a healthy thing. Nobody wants to live in that kind of culture, but we're seeing the fruit of that kind of mentality where a guy comes in and he commits a crime and within a matter of hours, he's back on the streets. You know, oh yeah, you can steal up to a thousand dollars and they've had guys, you can see it on the internet. The news have covered it where they go into stores with calculators and they add up to $999, and then they go up because they know there's no consequence. I mean, this is like total absurdity. But our nation is under judgment, and if we think the solution is political, we're deceived. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote a week from today, have our voice heard, because there are people who want, I think they want our economy even to implode. They're spending money into oblivion, uh, faster than we've ever seen. Every administration has been guilty of it. But the ferocity in which money is being spent since March of uh, 2020 is beyond belief. It is beyond belief what has happened and that we're going to implode upon ourselves. But that's what they want because that would lead to a more socialistic kind of government, which is what many people are thinking. So have your voice heard. Vote intelligently. Um, someone, uh, Ralph Reed, sent a packet of 500 handouts to the church this morning. I opened it up, and it, it looked at, you know, our current governor here in South Carolina versus his opponent. There's no comparison. You're either in favor of life or you're not. You're either in favor of parents' rights to decide what they want to do with their children in terms of education or you're not. There's no comparison, at least for the Christian. So for the Christian, kind, kind of like someone I was dealing with last week, a perfect sterling answer, 100% sure, grace of God, not by works, but living with a person with no conviction or twinge in their conscience. These are the people that Jesus is speaking about at the end of the age who know all the right answers, and he will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. These are fake, phony, plastic Christians. And I hope this person that I was speaking of came to Christ. I think they did. Time will show. Time will show because fruit is the byproduct of conversion, not the means to it, but time will show. And so for a person to say they have a regenerate mind, that they've been born again, that they've been given the mind of Christ, and to vote for a baby murderer, to vote for someone who's in favor of homosexuality and transgenderism, they're part of the vast multitude that Jesus will someday say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Bill from Stephen City, Virginia, 
Uh, first of all, wants to thank the board of uh, CBC and the staff for their commitment that you have in sharing the message of hope that comes from being a believer in Jesus Christ. His question today comes from the teaching on Friday, October 14th from Dr. Thomas Ice, who was our keynote speaker in our World Missions Conference. He indicated that he believes that there may be a few months to several years delay from the church rapture to the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Dr. Ice commented that he believes that this interlude may be the time of the battle between Gog, along with the many Islamic nations against Israel, which will be disastrous for Russia and her allies. That defeat may then allow for the clearing of the Dome of the Rock for the Jewish building of the Third Temple. I've not heard this explanation before by any other scholar or teacher. I have thought the short interlude was for the Bema seat judgment of the saved. Would you give me your thoughts on what happens after the rapture and ahead of the beginning of the seven-year tribulation? All right, so a couple things that might be helpful. Uh, I, I would not differ with him that much. I might on a few fine points. But uh, what he's keying off, among other things, and I just did a sermon on this recently. We're doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule, which I'm guessing you are listening to. And I did one sermon on Daniel 9. There's four that you should listen to for a lot more in-depth teaching. Uh, but Daniel says 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your people being the Jewish people in your holy city. And he gives a number of things that are going to happen. And then in the first 69 weeks of this prophecy, and then he says after the 69 weeks, after the 62 and 7, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And so he speaks at the time when the Messiah, the promised Messiah, and he gives a prophetical, actually a mathematical number, which is one of the most remarkable prophecies, I suppose, in Scripture in terms of convincing those who wonder about the truth of prophecy and how it's really history pre-written um, of when the Messiah will come. And so the Messiah comes to the day when Jesus presents himself to Israel. We call it Palm Sunday. And then after that presentation, he'll be cut off. And so five days later, he was crucified on Friday and have nothing. And the people of the prince who's to come. And so then he speaks of this second prince who's known as Andy, uh, uh, who, the, the prince who is to come, who's a Roman prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Um, and so after Messiah is cut off, it tells us that the city and the sanctuary, the temple, is going to be destroyed and with a flood. And so God allowed that to happen 38 years later. It's almost like God was giving Israel more and more and more chance to repent as the preaching went out, and then it came. And then he, the prince who is to come, uh, speaking of this future prince, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. So there's a number of princes, Messiah, the Roman general who destroys the city. And then between, at the end of the 69th week, the 70th week will start when there will come a man on the scene who will make a firm covenant with the Jewish people for one week. And in Jewish thinking, there's week of, there's a week of days like we have, but there's also a week of years. And so he's using a week of years, one week being seven years. And in the middle of that seven years, 
uh, this coming prince is going to commit the abomination of desolation. And Jesus, of course, mentions this. So the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy begins with the signing of this firm covenant that this coming prince is going to make. So the church is taken out, and I don't think it will be years, though it's not impossible, but there is a space of time, and I've taught this for 33 years here at Community Bible Church, and if you just go back and look at some of the charts that I put up, you'll see the rapture, and then there's a little space after the rapture on the chart before the seven-year tribulation starts. Now, how long is it? The Bible does not definitively say, but in light of the fact that there's millions of people across the planet that are missing, it would seem to be a very short period of time, weeks, days, possibly months. Years seems a little extreme for me. And I have argued, and if you want to go back to the series that we're doing where I deal with the War of Gog and Magog, um, the Ezekiel War, I argue that that will take place after the rapture of the church. So there are three great wars in this time frame. There's that war, there's the war of or what we often call the battle, maybe better, titled the campaign of Armageddon. And then there's the war at the end of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. And so there are three great wars, and that war that Ezekiel writes of would indeed be a perfect scenario for the Jewish people to rebuild their temple because among Russia, who's one of the key players, they're the lead player. There's other Muslim countries that Putin brings in to go against Israel. And God, not by the Israeli defense force, but by God's force, he wipes them out. How many? We don't know. Potentially tens of millions of Muslims are immediately wiped out. And it's done by the hand of God. And so in that sermon, I argue that might be indeed what God will use for the rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount. It might be the uh, deception, the lying wonders and miracles that the Antichrist will bring that he will use to allow the temple to be rebuilt. All we know is that it needs to be up and functioning where sacrifices are being offered before the midpoint because it's in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, that the Antichrist comes in and he defiles the temple. So what he was speaking of, I just wouldn't say it's years. And most would not say it's years. It's possible. What are we doing? Uh, and, and so the Bema seat, by the way, doesn't take place in that space of time. It takes place in heaven during the seven-year time frame, the judgment seat of Christ, as you'll see on most of the charts that I've used and made and created over the last 30 years. They're copyrighted, but I tell people you can use them all you want. Um, That's when the Bema Seed takes place, during the time of the Great Tribulation period. That's when the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. So we're not here for the tribulation. God doesn't beat up his bride black and blue and then bring them to a marriage supper. He brings the bride of Christ up into heaven, and after the evaluation— and we're rewarded accordingly. We sit down with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and after that, he comes back in glory where unlike the rapture where we're caught up in the air and the twinkling of an eye in just a a small, small segment of time, unlike that at the second coming, every eye will see him, and he comes to the earth, and we come back with him. So first he comes for his saints, 
Then he comes back with his saints. So two distinct events. But the Bema seed takes place during the Great Tribulation period. Uh, indeed, it's possible that the war of Gog and Magog could take place before the rapture, but it's unlikely. And so I've typically argued that it takes place shortly after the rapture of the church, and there will be a hook that the Scripture describes, and I think that hook, among other things, is probably being unfolded even as we speak. You know, a major gas line for natural gas from Russia to Europe has been violated. Add to that, Russia has now said, we're not giving you you know, what you need to heat your homes. And so they're clear-cutting forests right now in Western Europe that have been untouched for hundreds and hundreds of years because the people are afraid they're going to freeze to death this winter. And so Israel had originally offered to build a pipeline through Egypt, then over to Western Europe to provide natural gas for Western Europe. In Trump's argument, when he stood up, Uh, a few years back, where he was laughed at and mocked at by the Germans that this is what you should do. You you need more than one source because if you're limited just to Russia, then you've really, you know, put yourself in a bad position. That's just good common sense. They laughed at him. Now they're not laughing anymore. They wish they had listened to President Trump's advice. But indeed, this may be the hook that will move Russia to come down to attack Israel because their whole economy is based on their ability to to sell oil. They're not productive as a people. It's based on their ability to sell oil. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have Alberto from Savannah on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. i got a question. First um, Peter 1, 5. Verses against uh, Jude 1, uh, verses uh, 21 to 25. So it says we're kept by God's power, but yet in Jude 1, 21, it says that keep ourselves in the love of God, and then so on. So some people might say, well, uh, that if you keep yourself in the love of God, that you won't, uh, you know, as a Christian, that you, you won't enter heaven. Or compared to Second uh, Timothy 4.10, where Paul told Said that demons has left this present world, he has left me. So the word the word world is referred to the world system that he loved the world system, or that he loved the world, the people. Because he went back to Thessalonica. Can you explain, elaborate? Because some people think that 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 we enter heaven by our our keeping ourselves in the love of God, or also God's power that keeps us at, at the end. So that, at, at the converses, Jude one through twenty. Good question. Good question. So let me see if I can respond. Alberto, I know you're a regular listener. You might want to download the Search the Scriptures app. I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule, and included in that, I preached the book of Jude. Why did I preach the book of Jude? Because I was digging deeper into what Jesus prophesied in the Olivet Discourse, that men would turn away from the faith, that there'd be false teachers. There have always been false teachers in apostasy since the inception of the church. But what God tells us is that will be accelerated greatly. And the book of Jude really deals with the acts of the apostates, just like acts is the acts of the apostles. The book of Jude deals with the acts of the apostates. What does an apostate look like? And that's important 
because Jude begins his book saying, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. He thought, well, maybe I'll write a book like Romans about our common salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was handed down once for all to all the saints. And so I was going to write some, maybe a book of Romans, but God changed my direction. He changed the direction for me to write that you might be able to contend for the faith. And the faith here is articular. It's the faith delivered once and for all through the apostles, what we call the Bible. And he begins by warning certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And that's the way it often happens. Paul reminds the Ephesian elders, not of those who will come from the outside, though he addresses that, but his highlighted uh, warning to the Ephesian elders there at Miletus was those who would come from the inside because they look like a Christian, they talk like a Christian. You know, they may use the language of historic Christianity, but they put different definitions to it. And so when you come down to verses 20 and 21, he said, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. There's one main verb in the verse, keep yourselves in the love of God. You could paraphrase it, remain in the sphere of God's love. He's not talking about God loving you more. Uh, he affirms justification. You can't do anything to make God love you any more, and you can't do anything to make God you love you any less. You, he cannot love you anymore, and he can't love you any less. Um, when you are justified, you are declared righteous. Jesus said in the high priestly prayer in John 17, you're as loved as much as the Father loves the Son. But the exhortation here is to stay in the sphere of God's love. Um, you, you want to keep close to the Lord. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Building yourselves up on the most holy faith. And you do that by feeding on the word of God, not just to contend for the faith, but to build yourselves up on the faith, Um, building and then praying as a clean person and a clean heart who is spirit-filled. So he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's not dealing with your eternal relationship. He's dealing with your fellowship. He's not dealing with your union. He's dealing with your communion. In fact, he ends the epistle and he puts kind of bookends on both sides about how secure we are because, as you noted, in Jude 1.1, he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, not called, but the called, referring to that converted group of people who know Jesus as Savior, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We are kept for him. And at the end of the epistle, he puts another book in, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory and blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So he's not questioning our security. He is dealing with our intimacy, our fellowship, and we have a responsibility to walk in the light as he is in the light, to use John's terminology to keep ourselves in the love of God. Let's go to the next question. I think we have someone waiting online. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have Anthony on line two. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. 
Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Dr. Brogan. How are you doing this morning? Hey, good, Anthony. Um, the question I have, I think it's just a little question, but I would like to know. When Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and all the people down there was partying and acting fool and, and, and making Aaron made a, an idol god, right? Yes. Now, my question is, were were the people saying that this is were the people saying that this is God or this was their God? It's a good question. So they they make the argument there in Exodus that uh, this is the God supposedly that led them out of Egypt, and so they were denying what they had witnessed from the hand of the invisible God when he delivered them with a mighty hand with ten plagues, when he split the Red Sea in two and they came across on dry land and he drowned the whole army. And and so now, you know, Moses is up there and he's up there for 40 days and the people become impatient. And so they act immorally. Uh, there's all kinds of Im- sexual immorality that's unfolding. And typically, as Romans 1 teaches, that when you suppress what you know to be true of God, it leads to sexual immorality. I was, I was witnessing to two young ladies uh, recently. We were eating at uh, Sonic after church, and two ladies at one table. You go to church anywhere? Not really. And they were so open. We invited them to the harvest party and friend day and gave them a ticket. And these other two girls, uh, they were there. They got their meal a little bit later, and they were waiting. And I was said, I'd really like to talk to them, Father. And this one girl, she looked about 14 or 15, and she had this LGBTQIA shirt on with a color rainbow across her front. And so I approached them just as my, my wife took the grandkids. I said, go ahead, I'll meet you in a second. And because I didn't know where this conversation was going to go, and I wanted to protect my grandchildren's ears. And I said to the one, she said, yeah, I go to this church decibel. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, she said, yeah, my dad's a leader there. And she told me what he did. Oh, okay. Well, can I ask you a question? Sure. I said, on a scale of zero to 100, zero I don't know, and 100 I'm positive, how sure are you if you died in the next 60 seconds that you go to heaven? Oh, I don't know, 50%. I said, what do you think you'd have to do to be 100 she said, I'm not really sure. Okay. So, of course, I told her that you could be 100%. I invited her to friend day. I told her, and by the way, that's this Sunday. And if someone's listening, you have some friend who is unsaved and you want them to know how to be saved, this would be a great Sunday to bring them. This coming Sunday, I'll be not only, I hope, equipping Christians on how to share the gospel, and if you haven't led anyone to Christ in the last two or three years personally, you should come if you don't have a church home. I don't want to take you away from a Bible-believing church. But look, if a person can go to a church for X number of years and not even know what the gospel is, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And so I turned to her friend, and I said, well— what about you? Where would you say? She said, I'm not religious. I said, okay. I said, can I tell you why you're not religious? And she paused for a second. She said, sure. I said, the reason you're not religious, according to the Bible, is you're suppressing what you know to be true. I said, the front of that church, does that represent your value system? She said, yes. 
I said, that's why you're not religious, because in your heart, God wrote his commands. And in your heart of hearts, you know that homosexuality and all that's on the front of your church, in front of your shirt, is a sin. The Bible spells it out as sin. Now, we'll come down to whether or not the Bible is true or not. And you can write me off because you may never see me again. But I said, if the Bible's true, this really matters. And it's critically important. So we're seeing a replica of what took place in Moses' day. The people suppressed the truth of what they knew to be true in spite of the divine revelation God had given. And Paul reminds us that God gives divine revelation to this day. His eternal attributes, his divine nature, his power are seen through the things that he has created so that men are without excuse. But he said people didn't give thanks or praise, and they suppress that truth, and they end up worshiping themselves and the created order and the whole green movement. It's become a religion in and of itself. And so there is a direct connection between the LGBTQIA movement and the whole green movement. They fit hand in glove because it's the same sin being expressed in different ways, and so they become buddies. And that's kind of what happened in Moses' day. You say, how could that ever happen? Because they were living on the other side of the cross. And so there was a hardness of heart that people had, even unbelieving people had, on the other side of the cross because the spirit of God's relationship to the world after the cross totally changes. It changes not only in reference to the believer, where Ezekiel can say God will take your heart of stone and make it soft and pliable like a heart of flesh, and God will put himself, his spirit within you so that you'll want to walk in my statutes and obey my commands. But the relationship of the Holy Spirit to an unsaved world has changed this side of Pentecost because the new promise is that when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So Moses dealt in a forthright way. People had to decide. Uh, he smashed that set of commandments. And so what later was in the Ark of the Covenant was the second set in the three objects in the Ark of the Covenant, all pictured man's need for forgiveness. The second set, the very commandments that man had rejected and spurned, not only what was written on tablets of stone, but what was written in their hearts, as Romans 2.15 teaches, the budded rod of Aaron was in the Ark of the Covenant, which was an expression of how they rejected God's leadership, not just his standards, but his leadership. And then a jar of manna was in the Ark of the Covenant, how they rejected God's provision. And so on Yom Kippur, which the Jews just celebrated, they would put blood on the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and it pictured that when God looked down from heaven, he saw blood that covered over their sin. And of course, that ultimately pictured the Messiah himself. So yeah, the people got rebellious, and that's why, you know, under the old covenant, there are some things. I mean, David had five wives. David, a man after God's own heart, wouldn't be considered a believer under new covenant standards. So there's a lot that people, quote-unquote, got away with under their stony, hard hearts that could not be uh, considered today amongst believers and even amongst unbelievers. So let's go to the next question. Good question. All right. Sue from Branchville, South Carolina writes, Since moving, we've been searching for a new church. 
The one we are attending now is Southern Baptist. The pastor does teach through the books of the Bible, but he told us that he does that because it's easier than coming up with a new topic each week. There's very little depth to his teaching. He also believes that it's okay to have women deacons. The only reason that there's no women deacons now is because his deacons also serve as elders. Nothing is done in the church unless it's put before the congregation for a vote. Is this the type of church we should be attending? And I might add that I know this Sue, and she has been looking high and low for a good church, and there are few and far between up in that neck of the woods. Well, let me just say first, you know, the fact that your pastor believes the Bible, that he has the gospel, that he's teaching the word is a great thing. So you want to pray for him. You want to do all that you can to support him. Um, Maybe there are things in his schedule because of demands that the people are putting on him and pressure that he feels, feels to yield to those demands uh, that is keeping him from doing an in-depth study. One of his highest priorities, there are three non-negotiable priorities for a pastor. One, of course, is to teach the Word. The other is to pray. The other is to evangelize. So there's the Word that's taught to the sheep. There's the Word that's taught to the lost. And he's to lead in all those three realms. When the apostles in Acts 6 is dealing with you know, an unmet need, they could have certainly rolled up their arm sleeves and gone to work, but they said it wouldn't be good for us to neglect the word of God into prayer. And while they were apostles, they were also elders. Peter calls himself in First Peter 5 a fellow elder. And so as a fellow elder, he was a leader in the church, much like I am, much like your pastor is. And so you need to make sure, and sadly in a lot of churches, and I'm not picking on Baptists here, but sometimes they, you know, expect the pastor to be at every hospital bed and all these different things. And it's not that he couldn't, and it's not that I wouldn't want to be, but if I did that, I wouldn't be able to highlight and focus on my priorities. Sometimes every once in a while I've been asked, well, how sick do you have to be for you to visit me in the hospital pastor? And because maybe that's what they're used to from their last pastor. And I basically tell them, you don't want to get that sick. (laughs) And so it's not that I don't care, but I will call a lot of people. I can't do all that. Not as the teaching pastor of the church. And God has called me to be the pastor teacher. And so maybe your pastor needs to reevaluate some priorities and maybe the people need to be a little more sensitive to him. Some pastors just prefer to go in that direction because it's easy and it fills up their schedule, and it is very difficult, strenuous, mentally, spiritually challenging work to prepare a message. It's exhausting at times. And so maybe he is gravitated for that reason. I don't know. Obviously, I don't think that congregationalism is the New Testament form of government. You could argue for a mediated form of congregationalism, But ultimately, the Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they give watch over your souls. So they are to lead. They are to be men who lead. And there are not women elders, and there certainly, I believe, should not be women deacons. You might want to listen to my message from Acts chapter 6. I preached through the whole book of Acts. And so he says, select from among yourselves seven are near. 
and it's the word, generic term for men, seven men, uh, specifically in deference to women. So this is where we find the office of deacon starting, the office of servant. We're all called to be service servants, but there's the office of servant. And this is where it's found in Acts chapter 6. Listen to that sermon because I walk through the logistics of women versus men serving in this capacity and what some of the rationale is behind it. But the, the church, you need to lead. And the good thing is, is a lot of Southern Baptist churches are going back to a plurality of elders and deacons. The deacons can't serve as elders and function as deacons at the same time. It's impossible. So elders are to lead and guide and shepherd the church, and the deacons serve at the beck and call of the elders as there are needs that need to be lifted and shared in terms of responsibility. Now, you might not be able to find a better church than that one, and I don't even know what church you're talking about, so I don't have some pastor in mind or anything like that, so don't call me or email me someone who lives in this area. But I would say find the best church that has the gospel that's not compromising moral issues. If they're compromising moral issues, don't go. Find another church. Um, But assuming all that to be true, find the best church you can. And if, you know, and and let me just say parenthetically here, there's 300,000 churches in America. That's a lot of churches. Now, the average size, it was 75. I'm told more recently it's down to 50. 50,000 of them are expected to close within the next few years because the whole American tenor towards the living God is radically changing. So things are changing. Find the best one you can. But some of these pastors, you know, they've never been to seminary. Not that they can't become self-taught. There was a time when there were no seminaries in the world. And so they can become self-taught, but some of these guys are doing the best they know how, and there might be some resources you could direct them to. I have a lot of pastors who listen to the whole books of the Bible I've done, and they try to mimic some of the things they're learning, and I'm happy for them to do that. And so there's good commentaries, good tools, um, and, and if you're still not getting it, then supplement online with with other ministries that will feed your heart. We're out of time. It's been great to be with you for the Bible line in this hour. You can send your questions if you have questions to TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. I think Sue might have asked her question six weeks ago, but eventually we answer them and she'll get emailed that her answer came through today and she can listen online to her answer if she wasn't on the air live today. God bless you. Come to Friend Day this Sunday if you have a lost person that you're trying to win into the kingdom. Great Sunday in which to do it.